Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Welcome back to another episode of Wiser. I'm Jessica Liu, a PGY5 general surgery resident, and I'm here with Samridi Benskota, an MS3, um, and Alex Speak, an MS4 at Emory Medical School. We are honored to have Dr. Stephanie Drew here with us today. Dr. Drew is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon who received her DMD from Fairleigh Dickinson University and completed her OMFS residency at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Prior to joining Emory, she was a senior partner at a private practice in New York for 23 years and also served as an attending physician at Stony Brook University Hospital and Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Welcome to Wiser, Dr. Drew. Thank you. So we like to start out just by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into surgery and your path to where you are now. I am a native New Yorker, displaced to the south now. I uh, grew up on Long Island and surgery is always kind of something that I gravitated towards. My path went this way. I went to the University of Rochester and studied neuroscience there. I was actually in the first class I graduated with a neuroscience degree, a Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience at the U of R. My path to maxillofacial surgery actually came with me spending time with a neurosurgeon, which is where I thought I was going to go. And I absolutely hated it. It was very depressing, didn't like the life, didn't like the outcomes didn't like it at all and I thought to myself what am I going to do and I had a family member that was actually in dental school at the time who said to me you're very artistic you should consider dentistry as a career and I thought I have nothing to lose I'm going to go spend some time and Rochester had a postgraduate program in dentistry and I spent some time shadowing them so I went literally from the brain a couple of inches below into the mouth and I stayed there because it was fascinating So the dentistry part came and went, and I learned how to deal with the occlusion and the teeth, but the surgery was always part of my soul. And it drove me right back into residency. And I was privileged to train with some outstanding surgeons in New York. And what was amazing to me was the ability for this particular specialty to collaborate with many different specialties, and I loved it. So there were no plastic surgery residents when I was a resident, so I was the plastic surgery resident. The head and neck people really weren't on board with the things that we do today, so I was, as the chief resident, scrubbing on all these incredible cases. That exposure really gave me a great set of surgical tools to take out into my practice. And eventually, the practice that I joined and became a partner in focused heavily on reconstructive surgery of the face, I was part of my CLEF team and the co-director for about 20-something years, and then I left to come to Georgia. So you worked in private practice for a number of years before joining Emory. What was that experience like? Private practice was an interesting experience. I went into that practice, but it just so happened to be that the person that recruited me was the chair of oral surgery in my training program for 17 years. So I went into an academic private practice, if you will. We were expected to write papers. We were expected to keep track of our data and our patients clinically. 
and that's how he ran that practice. If you want to be involved in resident training and teaching, you can. It sounds like you were already doing privademics in some way. So privademics! Privademics. <laughs> New buzzword. I mean, one of the founding members of privademics. The thing that it was missing for me personally was the everyday, in and out, spending time with the residents the way I get to do right now. Like, I love that part. And I made a commitment to myself that by the time I was 58, I would retire from private practice and go into full-time academia. And it came a little earlier than that for me. So Dr. Roser, who recruited me, made me one of those offers I couldn't refuse. And I packed my life up and moved south. Wow. (laughs) That's the story. How do you perceive that women in OMFS, are they, as far as percentage-wise? Sure. Let's talk about that. That is that is not an elephant in the room any longer. It's actually naked and exposed on the table, right? So let's just have that conversation. I was the third woman to go through my training program in 30 years. I was alone during training. There were no other women in my training program. There was one urology resident and a lot of radiology residents, not too many women in surgery at all. The other woman that was there for me was the plastic surgeon that I co-chaired the cleft team with. She's about 10 years my senior, and she had three kids married to another surgeon and said to me, you could do anything you want. It was a great mentor to have to not let me be intimidated by the fact that was my dream. I wanted to be in the operating room and do the things I did. So to have a very strong role model like that was significant to me. I've tried to set that example as well. As far as statistics in my specialty go right now, there's about 8% women in the United States that are oral surgeons. We're like unicorns. Wow. Still not a lot. There's many training programs that refuse to take women on board. They intimidate them and harass them and do all kinds of things that go underneath the table. But there are lots of pages where people talk about that on the internet to one another to support one another through it and get people out of situations that are just pathologic in nature. And like I said, the elephant is now exposed and naked, right? We can't tolerate that kind of behavior. So I've made it my business to try and encourage young women and girls to think about becoming doctors and surgeons. Going into surgery as a life and a lifestyle, it's definitely a calling. Not everybody wants this life and wants this lifestyle. So Mm -hmm. you have to think about how you want to live your life, but you can't do it unless you spend time with people that are doing it and not be afraid to ask those questions. And maybe not everybody's going to be a woman that mentors you. There will be men that are great that mentor you. That's all I had. I had great men mentors that pushed me. And, and, and said, you could do this, don't worry, and don't give up. We've got you. We're not going to let anybody beat you up. Even though people try, but you're not going to let them do it. Mm-hmm. You're expected to be better than everybody else, right? The proving ground is really hard, and you have to work a lot harder and write more papers and be perfect all the time. And you can't let failure get to you. You have to just grow from that every single time. That's what it's like in my specialty, and I'm sure there are many, many other surgical specialties that I can probably quote to you, the statistics in terms of where they are. Until several generations of women go by and that you yourselves continue to mentor these women, it will continue until parity is is there. One day it will be, but right now it's not there yet. But the fact is, is that you're getting recognized for the work you're doing as long as you keep doing the good work and not giving up. 
And having worked with a lot of the OMFS residents here at Emory, there's a large number of women in the program here. Do you think that speaks specifically to the culture here as far as recruiting them? Or do you think that's just the nature and change where the pipeline has a lot of good female surgeons? In it? No, I think that this is a cultural thing here at Emory. You have three female attendings and two male attendings in our specialty here. So we're actually heavily weighted with female attendings, even though the two leadership positions are held by men, the program director and the chair. Mm -hmm. But that's fine. One day things will move along and change depending on where things go. I think it's just the three women that are here are strong. I'm a very senior surgeon, then we have a middle surgeon, and we have a very young, very talented surgeon. The three of us together, people know and the women that are out there that are applying now know that we've had many women in the program we've had residents get pregnant and come back to work and life didn't stop like the whole residency <laughs> didn't fall just apart happened yeah imagine that Still right works. imagine that so i think just to, by the grace of our leadership understanding that how important family is and how important it is for your mental health and after going through this pandemic and seeing how it affected all of us, you learn how to adjust your sales a little bit to accommodate people for their life. You can be a great surgeon. You can do it. That's awesome. <laughs> and so did you have your kids while you were already in attending or did you have them when you were in training? So I had my kids after I graduated from residency. And my husband was a naval submarine officer, oh, so it was wow. very difficult to make a baby when your husband's in the middle of the ocean and you don't know where he is. <laughs> so <laughs> it was about 10 years after we got married. So I was 33 when I had my first and 38 when I had my second, and I had lost one in between. Oh, and those two babies came at different times in my post-training life, but at the be very beginning of my career. It was great and I had good support from my employers at the time. Mm -hmm. You found they were supportive as far as maternity leave and all the time for that? If you're going to be in, in business with somebody, they're obligated to give you maternity leave. They're not going to be able to fire you because it's against the law. It just hurts your economics. So you have to have a really good contract with the people that you work with to say, this is what I intend to do, and let them know. It's not like it's a mystery. You're going to go to them and be like, I intend to have a family one day. Let's figure out how to work this out in the contract so that nobody's surprised yeah. and nobody's yeah. mad and bitter. If it's time and you're ready, then you do what you have to do and you make it work. Like we had multiple residents give birth in our training program and they were fine. The world didn't stop. They were very strong residents in terms of their surgical capabilities and they were smart and they did well on their exams and like typical mom multitasking. Women can do anything. <laughs> One of the things we did want to talk about, especially if you're willing to share, in October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness sure. Month, I do understand from talking to some of your residents that you're actually a breast cancer survivor. Um, <laughs> that was wood knocking for yeah. those of you that yeah. want to know what that is. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that experience, especially being on the other side of the patient-doctor relationship? Sure, I'll tell the story actually because Absolutely. it's quite remarkable. My breast cancer was found because I moved here to Atlanta and took this job. Wow. Being really busy in my private practice, there was just no way that self-care was something that we did. The way we do when we're here in academia, they force you to get your shots and pay attention to yourself. So when I got here, the chair at Grady at that point in time, I had called her because I needed to get a physician and she said, you know, 
great. We'll help you organize that. And I say, by the way, I keep getting all these mosquito bites and I have one on this, my right flank on the side wall of my chest that just like it won't go away and it's really bothering me. It was very inflamed. She goes, let me take a look at it. So she looks, she says, probably nothing. You probably got, you probably scratched it and it's infected. She goes, but when's the last time you had a mammogram? And I said, well, I had to move to Atlanta. I've been busy. It's probably been like two years. Now, mind you, I get a mammogram all the time every year because my mom is a breast cancer survivor. Okay. So I said, you know what? You're right. It's time to get a mammogram. And I went to Emory and got my mammogram done in the beginning of December. And when I was down in the mammogram room, I said, they always take a sonogram of my breast because they always see whatever things. And she said, okay, we'll do that. They don't see anything on the sonogram or the mammogram. And it was because of this resident that was in the room with me who said to me, Dr. Drew, because you are uh, a child of a person that had breast cancer at Emory, we recommend that you get a baseline gadolinium scan. Would you like to go for it? So I'm a pretty good soldier. I said, yeah, all for science. Let's just do the gadolinium scan. I'm thinking I got to drink something. I have no idea I'm getting an IV. They schedule me for the next day. I get this gadolinium scan and I go back to my office and I'm working and they call me. They said, you need to come back downstairs. We see something on the scan. I'm like, sure, I'll go downstairs. And there is literally a lime green jelly bean in my left breast, the opposite side of the bug bite. Thank God for the bug, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's tiny. It's less than a centimeter. And I looked at the radiology people in there and I said, you need to biopsy that immediately. They go, right now? I said, right now. I said, I can't wait. And within 48 hours, 24 hours, Cheryl called me and she said, I hope you're sitting down. You have introductal carcinoma in your left breast. Wow. And my world got turned upside down. I had started work November 1st. And by the end of January, I had bilateral mastectomies and deep flap reconstruction. And it's been a challenge for me every day to live with a demon, knowing that you have cancer or had cancer, however you want to put it. And now I'm three and a half years out. So yeah. I'm still not out of the woods, but so far so good. Congratulations. Thanks. And, you know, such a big thing to undertake, especially with the stress of yeah. taking on a new job. I can only imagine. It's crazy. <laughs> I'm surprised we made it this far. But yeah. I did. I think we are a lot more resilient than we think we are. And it's kind of like, well, what am I going to do about it? I knew I wanted to get back to the hospital and get back to the residents. And I just chose to be really brave and go for it. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel like having been a patient that helped you connect more with them too? A hundred percent. It's been a gift in a way because now I do a lot of surgery with patients that have cancer in their jaw and in their face and tumors and that need free flap surgery. And when they balk about moving their leg bone to make a new mouth bone, I said, listen, I've been through this operation. It's not, per you're fine. You'll be fine. And they look at me and I explained to them, I said, I'm a cancer survivor. I had to have free flap surgery. If I can do it, if anybody could do it, <laughs> right? Anybody yeah. could do it. Yeah. So yeah. it's a good gift that it gave me yeah. to help my patients mm -hmm. know that I can empathize and sympathize with yeah. them. Are there any things that helped you connect better with your doctors and feel more comfortable? With I just moved here. I didn't know anybody yeah. except mm -hmm. for Dr. Roser. I have no family here. So my family was telling me, come back to New York, let us take care of you. And I was like, I just moved my whole life. I cannot. So yeah. I put my trust in Dr. Roser and Dr. Carlson and Dr. Chang. They were 
lovely to me and took really good care of me and I trusted them to do the right thing and they did what they had to do. Any kind of relationship with a doctor comes with being honest. You need to be honest with yourself and you need to be brave enough to talk to them about the things that are concerning you and bothering you, even if it's mental health related. You can't have anything stigmatize you because you need to be able to function as a surgeon. So you need to recognize what is going on with you to be able to communicate with your doctors to help them. So whether it's my physician, my oncologist, my surgeons, whomever, that is the best way to communicate, to be completely honest with each other. And from doctor to doctor, I think it's a lot different than from myself to a lay person. With a lay person, we need to take our time to really explain things to them so they can completely understand. That brings me to drawing and art and using art as a communication tool for patients. Dr. Carlson and Dr. Chang, they were good with me like that because we were very honest. They know that I did a lot of reading as soon as I knew what I had. Of course, you're going to start reading and talking about it. And I saw my oncologist this morning, as a matter of fact, for my follow-up. And Dr. Maisel said to me, you're doing great. And we talked about what's new out there for breast cancer and what's going on. And we talk a lot about things like this, but very honest. Mm. I think the honest thing is that you're, in a, you're a doctor, you're a surgeon, and you you're a different person than the lay person. They can't treat you the same way because they know that you know too much. Yeah. I'm curious, your breast cancer story, just the way you describe it and how remarkable it was, things lining up, little comments that all lined up perfectly in terms of finding this information out. How have you metabolized that in terms of what that means to you and how that story has carried you through that journey? For me, the process of moving here and then finding the cancer, it gives me almost like a positive vibe that it was meant to be, like I should be here. Mm -hmm. I'm here for a reason. Knowing how I had to live my life when I was running a company, we were running three offices, multi-million dollar corporation essentially is what you do when you're in private practice. And it's, you don't sleep, right? It's every single day. And giving the reins to administration here to let them worry about that so I can be a doctor and not worry about that makes me really happy. Like, I don't, they want me to run the hospital. They have to pay me a lot more money, that's for sure. <laughs> and I think that thinking about that story also gives me an appreciation for my residents in a way that it's the youth that sees the future. It's the person that may have been looking at it from 30,000 feet saying, oh, look, there's an opportunity for us to capture the information. The doctor, the senior doctor there is very busy, but young resident said to me, Dr. Drew, wait, don't go away. Can we do this for you? And I thought, what a nice kid. Thank you. And I went back and thanked them for saving me. Yeah. So that's how I kind of process that. I feel very fortunate I feel sorry for myself that I had to go through this, of course, but I don't feel like that needs to consume me every day. It's bad enough that I think I have cancer in my body every day, but I, I have to focus on other things or else I can't get through the day. One of the things you mentioned was that you mentioned to us that you do painting and stress relief. Was this something that you did to help you with your course for recovery as well? No, I've actually been painting since my daughter's about five, so for about 20 years. Dr. Roserhead actually introduced me to an artist in Atlanta here, and we actually brought her to teach uh, my residents. We did grand rounds with the residents with the artists and live models and did facial proportions with them and sketching. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So we developed an art and surgery curriculum, 
And now I've been working with a team of doctors throughout Emory that are actually interested in humanities and medicine and humanities and surgery. We put this course together and it's one of the M2 electives called Art and Surgery. And it's essentially what does art mean to you in terms of being a surgeon? What is it that you're going to use it for as a surgeon? And I talk a little bit about developing hand-eye coordination, spatial relationships, and just humanity in general. So we did our first class last night. In the first class, I have a a huge amount of instruments that I take from the operating room and I have them doing contour drawing of the instruments and I walk yeah. around and say, what do you think we use that for? Yeah. We'll be doing shades of gray and then we'll be doing uh, gestures and then we'll be doing like different levels of sketching and they get sketch pads and art supplies and everything and we're in the museum sketching and doing and I'm following these students along. We'll see how many of them actually go on to surgery. Sure. That's so cool, and especially I feel like in a field, especially in plastic surgery for us, and I'm sure with what you do in OMFS, shapes are really important, and the art form it is sure. an artistic endeavor sure. oftentimes. Think about, think about all the surgery that you learn how to do. Every time you take a scalpel blade, and you, how do you know how hard to press the blade through the skin? There's no difference with a paintbrush or a pencil. How do you know how hard to press to make a different yeah. line or shape? except the paper doesn't bleed. There's many ways that learning how to use your hand skills for drawing, painting, is very good for you if you want to be a surgeon. And it doesn't matter if you could draw well or not, it's just developing the skill set. What, in your experience, have you seen as the benefits of us as scientists, as providers, engaging in art? In humanities in general. Yeah, exactly. There's two buckets that get filled with it. One is humanity in general and just being able to connect with people, cultures. And when you study art for just looking at the things that people want to talk about or stories that people tell with art, it gives you the ability to maybe see inside cultures that you may not be able to get in a plane and go see. They just opened up an Asian exhibit in the Carlos Museum and learning about Asia or anything that you may have seen through history but really don't identify with in a way that you may be able to identify with through art because art is telling stories a lot of time or making a statement i think that humanity bucket is really important so if you lived in the same town your whole life okay and you only knew 20 people and then you go to a big city and you need to help a bunch of diverse people how do you connect with them unless it's through humanity. So learning how to listen to people's stories and take them in and appreciate them without judging is really, really important. So I think art brings people together because everybody can love art. Art's not just for one person, it's for everybody. And then it's selfish, right? The other bucket is my selfish bucket. It fulfills my need to be creative and not destructive. So surgery, although it's creative, it's a little bit destructive at the same time. What specialty in the world makes you hurt people to make them better? You think about what we do every day. You have to hurt somebody to make them better. And not with malice, but with the intent of getting them better. Moving something around, fixing something, changing a part out, or any of those particular things that we do to people when we operate on them and then we have to get them through the journey of healing and the suffering that goes along with that and having an outlet where I can for instance paint and if I make a mistake it doesn't matter because nobody's gonna die or I can do a do-over it fulfills that to me like I have a way to still create without worrying about it if I can't be perfect So those are the buckets Mm -hmm. that it fills for me as a surgeon. 
Another thing that you're also involved with is that you're also the founding chair of the ACOMS Elaine Struber Scholarship for Women. So could you talk a little bit more about that, the inspiration behind the scholarship, and what does it support and how can women apply into it? So the scholarship was developed to support women that wanted to attend national meetings in my specialty that otherwise could not do it or were intimidated to do it. Elaine Stubner was the very first woman to become an oral surgeon in the United States. Wow. First woman mm -hmm. to get accepted into a training program. She trained in Chicago, and this was made in her honor. I raised enough funds for it to be self-sustaining. People donated lots of money to it. And essentially, it's about a $5,000 scholarship a year. It's an essay contest. We've opened it up to residents as well as attend post-training post women. Originally, it was directed for the post-training women because women won't go to these meetings. Usually, they're the only woman in the room, and it's very intimidating to be away from home. This was done so that we can encourage women to be there. And what I did with it is it wasn't just about getting to the meeting, but as soon as they won the scholarship, then I put them on committees yes, mm -hmm. and gave them, them an the opportunity pipeline. to put them in the pipeline of leadership development and hopefully each one of them I think there's been four or five of them so far like they're moving through the systems now and working their way through it so that's why I did it because I needed to find a way to give back and and help as much as I could you mentioned for the scholarship it was an essay contest what's the theme for the essay it's different every year like last year of course we asked them to write about how the pandemic affected their mm -hmm. life we asked them like if you could have dinner with one person who would it be and why and what would yeah. you talk about just fun topics to write yeah. about i bet those essays are probably pretty inspirational to read they're awesome and i have the privilege of reading them and helping judge them and sometimes you can't believe some of the things that people have gone through and shared and it makes you feel like you're not alone mm -hmm. which is so good i got more out of it than i thought i was going to get awesome for general surgery there's a lot of dei committees getting going do these omfs organizations have those types of committees as well to diversify the, the people in the organization or is that something well, we're still working on we're working on it yes and no there's nothing that's called dei that i've seen in any organization but it's to the point where, for instance, I was the chair of the CE committee for several of these organizations, and then somebody would be chairing a, a meeting, say there's a meeting going to be in January, and then they'd come up with a roster of speakers, and if there were no women on the speaker list, I would send it back to them and say, now take three of the men off and find three women to speak. And then they would say things like, I don't know any women. I said, here's a list of 50 women that could speak for you. Yeah. So there are other women in my specialty right now. The current president of the college, she's worked on um, something called Leadership Forum for Women, where it's a speaker's forum. Mm -hmm. So that women that are in our specialty that want to speak, that have been writing and have something to contribute can get onto a speaker's docket because you need to get invited so somebody can yeah. hear you speak. And I encourage these women to go speak locally. I don't care if you start with your local society and then move to your state society, a vendor might see you speaking and say, we'd like to, to get them to come to this national meeting. Did you ever hear her speak here? And that's how it happened for me. I did it on my own in terms of just showing up to these meetings because I wanted to be part of it. And then the people that were in the room, the men that were in the room, somebody gave me an opportunity and said, would you like to give this lecture? And it was great. On the, the flip side of that, do you ever feel like you were tokenized for being one of the few women in A couple times people have made comments like that. 
I am from New York, so it's really difficult to get my goat. <laughs> <laughs> and there are several choice four-letter words that I save for them that I can't say on a podcast. But I basically told them, under no circumstances do I not deserve to be here. Show me your money. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Let's see what you got. Here's my CV. Where's yours? Absolutely. Yeah. I love how passionate you are about art and how much you seem to have known about it all the time. How do you find time in your crazy surgeon world and being a mom and working as hard as you do as a surgeon to dedicate to you time and getting mm-hmm. to keep yourself whole with art? So it's not easy to do that for yourself. So it's always at the end of the day, you're tired, you don't want to do anything. If you're on a weekend, if you have a free weekend, sometimes I'll go down to the, I have it in my basement, an area where I'll paint and draw and sketch or whatever, and I'll just open up my sketchbook or what have you and just sit. Maybe I'll look at the flowers in my garden and draw them just to make me take my mind off of what have you and you don't need to spend six hours even if you're spending an hour at least it's an hour of something that's just not work related hour of getting your mind up or something like that are there any other hobbies other than painting and art that you have traveling i like to travel a lot if i had feathers i'd be happy (laughs) i like to read for fun i like movies those are some of the things that i like to do when i'm just down and relaxing I think the art is is important to me though and just being with my family I love spending time with my family my family makes me laugh and they just humble you barking orders at people like you're in the operating room they're like you're right (laughs) (laughs) they make you laugh at yourself (laughs) fork knife that's awesome I have a few fun questions we always ask okay one is what kind of music do you listen to in the OR if any if they let me disco Big hair, closer to God, disco music. We always like to ask if there are any books you recommend. I just read The Sisters Blackwell. It's about Elizabeth Blackwell and her sister Emily. Elizabeth Blackwell, first woman to become a physician in the United States that go to medical school. I recommend it highly to the wiser audience. (laughs) It's a great story and a really interesting story. And personally, I like spy novels. So I'm a big fan of John Le Carre. Nelson DeMille I like in terms of just some mysteries. And I pretty much read anything. I I do, I like to read, but I just read for fun. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's incredibly inspirational and I am so happy that we have all these great OMFS co-residents that we work with a lot. Yes, I know they enjoy being with you guys very, very much. The community that you build here at this institution is essential for your well-being as a surgeon, as a woman. Once we realize that we have a good community and that we're here for each other, it just makes it so much easier. And you know what? We are special and we do need each other. Thanks for listening to another episode of Wiser. We'd also like to wish good luck to all of the fourth year medical students interviewing for residency. Last year, we held a Zoom panel on virtual residency and fellowship interviews. We've uploaded that recording to YouTube so our listeners can benefit from all the wisdom that was shared. We'll include the YouTube link in our show notes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. And if you're a fan of Wiser, why don't you take a few quick moments to rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.